You know, I've gone through a, <clears throat> a number of storms, uh, both physical as well as spiritual and emotional. Uh, physically, uh, the biggest storm that I ever went through was way back in the early 1980s, 1983, when Suzanne and I were living on the Gulf Coast, um, about 30 miles south of the city of Houston in a place called Clear Lake City, which was where Johnson Space Center is. But it was at uh, that particular time we were there that uh, Hurricane Alicia hit the, slammed into the Gulf Coast. And in a space of about seven or eight hours in the middle of the night, uh, we had uh, 13, 14 inches of rain, 135, 140 mile an hour winds. And you, uh, I was up all night, and our windows were boarded up and all that kind of stuff. And I heard this incredible tree uh, fall, and uh, I didn't bother going outside because it was just uh, so many things were flying around. But uh, the next morning, it was, uh, it was all done, and uh, I went out, and I... I, into my backyard, and I noticed that every fence in the entire neighborhood was down. It was just flattened, and you could look down the row of homes and see everything that everybody used to have, so to speak. Uh, there, the tree that snapped was my tree, and if it would have clipped the side of the house, it would have torn off part of the roof, and then we would have really been in trouble. Fortunately, the tree landed between our house and our neighbor's house, and uh, I, everything was all right. And then the, the actual storm hurricane itself set off a number of tornadoes, and uh, it took out, you know, other trees and moved cars from one place to another and uh, kind of cut out a huge swath of vegetation, kind of like a heavenly weed whacker type thing. But it was, it was just a, an incredible a storm. Now, as mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, Jim, storms take uh, uh, kind of different forms. You know, 32 years ago, 32, 33 years ago, my younger sister uh, gave birth to the final of her four children. Maybe it was the third one, but uh, anyway, uh, the a little guy named Grant had all kinds of complications, uh, including Down syndrome, heart trouble, and rectal problems, and and so forth. And he had, went through a number of surgeries at the very beginning of his life, and his odds of survival were were not good. But uh, he lives on even today. He's uh, 32, 33 years old. He has the mental capacity of a nine-month-old, needs a daily enema, around-the-clock care. My sister is in her latter part of the 60s. Uh, my brother-in-law's in the early 70s. And they just kind of continue on. Uh, chronic storm, 32 years and counting. And the question that we have is, how is a Christian supposed to look at the storms in his or her life? And the answer that comes out of Scripture, and I can only deduce this, there's nothing that it 
legitimately articulates in the, in the scripture itself. But when a Christian encounters a storm, we're to look at that storm like nobody else. Uh, if you go out into the streets of our community uh, here in Irvine and surrounding areas and ask people what Christianity is all about, define it, if you, if, you know, what your understanding of it is, chances are you would find a lot of people that would say, well, Christianity is a way of behaving. And it certainly is that. That would be right on. But it's so much more than behaving correctly. Uh, Christianity is truth uh, by which we see the world. Uh, Christianity gives the world meaning. It gives you an identity. And Christianity is not so much a formal religion as it is a vital relationship. Now this morning I want to look um, at the storm that the disciples were going through. We read two different versions of it in Mark as well as John, and the book of John is what we're going through right now. But uh, I want to kind of, you've got an outline in front of you, but I want to highlight three observations and then uh, highlight a couple of attributes of God and then close with a few practical lessons. I'll not be long today, but I hope that um, we can all leave with a few handles. So first, we're going to begin with the observations. And the first observation is that this event takes place on the very same day, the evening of the same day, that Jesus fed the multitude uh, that we looked at last week. Let me read a verse out of John 15, or John 6, 15. So Jesus, perceiving that the crowd was intending to take him by force, to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself all alone. Now, what's wrong with the idea of uh, wanting to make Jesus king? I mean, didn't he really come to be the messianic king? Uh, and the, the answer is yes, he, he did come that. But before he was going to be crowned king, uh, he needed to go to the cross and atone for sinners for, so that they might become righteous and become part of God's kingdom. You know, people wanted to make Jesus a political king uh, that would really deliver them from Roman oppression. Uh, but Jesus' purpose was simply to be a spiritual king and complete the work of redemption. Jesus dismissed the crowd so that the disciples wouldn't get caught up in the contagion of all of this thing, and then he put the disciples in a boat and sent them to the other side of the sea. Uh, and while he, they were doing that, he was climbing up the mountain in order to pray. Now, there's a second observation as well I want to put before you, and that is the disciples in the midst of the storm that they encountered were all staying together and acting responsibly. They all worked hard to stay alive, keep the boat from having as much water in it as possible and rowing and trying to get to the opposite shore. And the boat trip, which would probably take about one hour from where they were and where they were going, ended up taking more than the entire night. 
the disciples started out on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And they were going across the top part of the sea to the west side to a little village on the coast of the sea, which was called Capernaum. Now, in good weather conditions, it wasn't a long trip. But we need to keep in mind, and many of you are going to discover this when you go to Israel next month or so, but uh, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And the mountains that are around it, it's oftentimes very easy for the wind to come up over those mountains and down on the sea and turn that calm sea into a wet fury. And so they, they rode until, it says, the fourth watch of the night. And that is between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. And they were nowhere near land. Now, the determination of these men was admirable. Uh, not all of the disciples were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a political activist. But all of the disciples took part, and they rowed, and they kept the boat free of water as much as they could, and balanced out, and just worked hard to try and get to shore. Now, the third observation is that the storm had an instructional purpose, as they all do. The storms in your life have an instructional purpose. Same with me. This particular physical storm had an instructional purpose for the disciples. And when Jesus appeared on the water, uh, at first they were terrified, then they were comforted, and then they worshipped. Uh, they thought he was a ghost, then recognized him as Jesus, and then realized that he was the Son of God. You know, one person admits that or I see, I should put, let me put it this way. Once a person admits that Jesus is the Son of God, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl is compelled to act upon that knowledge. Intellectual honesty demands it. And the disciples simply fell on their faces before the Lord when they, you know, becoming clearer what was going on. Still a couple of years into his ministry. Now, uh, let me move on from the observations to a couple of attributes that, uh, of God, of Jesus, that were kind of lifted out in this story. Uh, first of all, we see uh, something of his holiness. Now, when Jesus shows up in the darkness of the night to walking on the water, it's a revelation that he is from somewhere else. Uh, they were in the... In, the disciples were in the presence of one who was transcendently above them, and they began to recognize this. They were filled with fear, and that's natural because the human response of the, to the supernatural is always going to be that way. But interestingly, uh, John 6.20 says when Jesus approached, he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, the clause, it is I. It's a ego imi in the Greek text, and it's got a very unusual grammatical instruction. Literally, it means I am. Jesus says, don't be afraid. 
I am. Hundreds of years earlier, uh, the Son of God, and this would be Jesus, appeared in the Old Testament as well. When Jesus was uh, very active in the New Testament because he was in a human form, but he was very active in the Old Testament as well. We call it a theophany when he appears, but he appeared to Moses in 1500 B.C. uh, at the burning bush. And it was then that he told Moses, listen, Moses, I want you to leave the land of Midian and I want you to go to Egypt. That's where you were born. That's where you were raised. And that's where the people of Israel have been for 400 years. And I want you now to lead them to the promised land that I have determined uh, for them. And so uh, this is what God told him to do. And it was right at the burning bush. And when he was there, when Moses was at the burning bush with the Lord, God said to Moses, he says, I want you to take off your shoes because the ground on which you're standing is holy. And Moses asked, Lord, when I go to Egypt, who shall I say sent me? And Jesus said, tell them I am sent you. Tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. I am Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is the the word in the Hebrew Bible, and in most of our English Bibles, the Old Testament word for God is Jehovah. We understand that. But Yahweh means I am. And Jonathan Kahn makes that wonderful observation in his great book that says, every time you reach out and you shake hands with somebody else and say, I am Gary, or I am Al, or I am Sean, or I am Jerry, you are actually mentioning God's name along with your own, and you're mentioning God's name before you mention your own. And that's exactly what we do. So remember when we greet each other, I am Yahweh. Then you give your own name. And just a a wonderful observation. And what God is saying to Moses is saying, Moses, I am not like anything else you have ever seen. I have no beginning. I have no end. There is no I was about me. There is no I will be about me. I am. I do not change. I need nothing. I'm dependent on nothing. I am totally self-sufficient. I am the Holy One. And in the fury of the fire of the burning bush, Moses got it. This is God. Now here Jesus comes in the fury of the water and he says to his disciples, I am. And the disciples hit the decks and they worship. See, he is not just simply a nice guy. He's not solely a great teacher. He's not simply at the top tier of humanity. We can't put him there because he won't go. He's God. He's I am. There's no question about the deity, equal with the spirit, equal with the father. He's God. Now, the second attribute that comes out 
of God that surfaces in our text is his power, and obviously. But I want to comment on it a little bit and expand it to just so that we understand something of God's power. But power is the ability to act your intentions into being. Uh, for instance, the person who has the desire to build a house and the means to build a house has more power than the person who has a desire to build a house but not the means to build a house. Now, we all experience at times a disparity between what we want to do and what we can do. And the smaller the disparity, the more power we have. The larger the disparity, the less power we have. God, however, has no disparity between the intention of his will and his ability to pull it off. He does what he wants to do, and no one can ward off his hand. It doesn't matter how turbulent things are. He says, I am the Lord of the storm. Now, there's a, a Puritan writer who lived in the 1600s. His name is Stephen Charnock. And uh, he's a brilliant guy. He wrote uh, a book called The Existence uh, and the Attributes of God. Two volumes. I've got it one volume, big space. 1,300 pages long on just the attributes of God. And I think, my goodness, you know, there's... Like all of the Puritans, they were so smart and, and just so very much in tune with the Lord. And they, they had a little bit of conflict over in England uh, just because of the king blowing off and everything and so many things happening over there. And so they migrated over to the United States. They settled in. At, uh, in New England area, ended up starting Harvard University, which was preliminary or, or ultimately wanting to train people for the ministry and so forth. And so Stephen Charnock wrote this incredible book, and he says this. He makes a great observation about the power of God. He says, it's through the power of God that his other attributes are realized. <clears throat> for instance... Without the power of God, the mercy of God would be nothing more than feeble pity. Without the power of God, the love of God would be mere sentiment. Without the power of God, the wrath of God would be an empty threat. And so it's the power of God, Charnock says, that all of these other attributes became, become ruling realities in the universe. Let me give you some examples of that. For instance, we would say God is truth, and therefore truth becomes a ruling reality. And that means when we lie, when we cheat, when we deceive, we're on a collision course that will shred the beauty of our humanity in our lives. We know that because when trust is violated, people are injured, relationships dissolve, and character erodes. When honesty reigns, people are healed, uh, relationships thrive, and character develops. Life works that way because an all-powerful God has built truth into the fabric of the universe. Consider the attribute of love. 
We all know that's a good attribute. By his power, God has woven love into the fabric of the universe. The unloving despots of the world today, you can go all the way back in history, the Genghis Khans, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Husseins, the Osama bin Ladens, they don't last, they don't make it. It's because they're flying in the path of a ruling reality and they cannot ward that, that off. They don't live long. They're all gone. So consider the, when the, the power of God, the attributes become those ruling realities. Uh, consider the attribute, another one, of God's love. And we know that God is a loving God. I mean, how can you be more loving when you send your very own only begotten son who is God himself to this earth in order to redeem you and I who are rebelling against God? That's how much God loves us to send God to earth in order to take on our sin. And by the way, it's, it's a, it's a two-way proposition to get to heaven. To take for Jesus to die for your sin on the cross by itself is not a ticket to glory. What you need is the imputation of his righteousness to your life. It's a twofold thing that took place at the cross. Both his righteousness and the absence of your sin that allows you to get to heaven and glory. That's just how much God loves you. Uh, let, me, let me give you another one. How about the attribute of love. By the love of God, or God's love, he has woven love into the fabric of the universe. Well, let me just move on from that because I just saw that. Uh, consider the God's attribute of, uh, of humility, okay? We'll do that one for a minute here. Uh, those who demand power, even in a church, never get it. They never get what they demand. But the person who is humble, who is unafraid to admit inadequacy uh, and failure, those individuals carry incredible power, incredible power in a church. Those who walk low to the ground, that don't do a lot of chest pounding, they might be incredibly gifted, but you know what? They let others praise them, they don't praise themselves, so forth. These are the kinds of people, the humility people are the great leaders in churches and really in all aspects of life itself. Uh, consider the attitude or the attribute of generosity. Jesus is generous. God is generous. It's an attribute for us as well. I mean, generous people are always free. The, the greedy people are always going to be enslaved. Uh, you know, it's the stingy who lose power over themselves and they become miserly. It's a, kind of a diabolical reversal of the created order. People made in the image of God, instead of having dominion over things, we end up getting it all reversed and we become enslaved to things. It's kind of the Silas Marner disease. You know, God is powerful. You know, and we witness his power every moment of every day. We witness his power by the way that he has taken his character 
and wove it into, wove it into the social and moral laws of this universe. We must continually be aware that, that storms, when they come into our lives, it's not an elective in God's curriculum. Uh, it's a required course. God always has a message for you and for me in the midst of whatever misery we happen to be going through at a particular time. He always has a message. All right, let me finish it up with uh, a couple of personal lessons that we can apply to our lives today. And the first one is this. Storms are designed to mature you so that you might reflect, more reflect, better reflect the character of Christ. Attributes like love and humility and generosity and mercy have been woven into the fabric of the universe and woven into the fabric of your life. And God uses storms in your life in order to do that. You know, and that's why God handles every storm differently. You know, uh, sometimes God will calm the storm. Other times, God will let the storm rage and calm the child in the midst of the storm. But the purpose is always the same, and that is to make you the kind of person that you really want to be, a a person of deep joy and yet empathetic and easily touched by grief, a person of conviction yet approachable, a person of courage and yet humble, a person of passion and yet pure. Jesus Christ came to suffer, and we understand that, but he didn't come to suffer so that we might not suffer. He came to suffer so that when we do suffer, we might become like him. It's all becoming Christ-like. That's the whole purpose of it. Now, let me give you a second lesson. Storms help us realign the focus of our trust. Now, the implication from Mark's account is that this event uh, is that Jesus knew uh, the disciples were heading into the storm. He understood that. He knew that. He was sending them into a place of danger seemingly bereft of his presence. Now, the implication is this for you and me. There will be times when God sends us into places where it seems that he is absent, where it seems that he is gone. And during those times, when we go through those times, we need to remember that God knows what he's doing And we also need to remember that he is always near whether we feel it or not. When he came to the disciples, you know, in the midst of the storm, he was walking on the water, and they were rowing that boat out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee trying to get to shore. When he appeared to them, he didn't say, hey, listen, don't be afraid. I just heard the weather report. He didn't say, don't be afraid. It will soon be over. Not too much longer in this. He didn't say, don't be afraid. 
the shallows are near. Jesus never, magna, Jesus never minimizes the magnitude or the length of the storm. He never minimizes it. But Jesus does say, take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. The great I am is near. You know, two or three months back, a number of the men, we were studying Jonah and reading one of uh, Tim Keller's books on Jonah, and he, he says this. He says, the benefit of storms, and Jonah went through a storm, as we all know, the benefit of storms is that they show us the inadequacy of our life rafts that we construct in order to do life without God. Money, status, career, popularity, health, family, friends are things that we often hold up to God or hold up to our community here uh, when we're drowning in the water of life, you know, that somehow we think we can do it without God. But if you, you know, you, it doesn't matter because if you build your life on beauty, you've got the storm of aging, if you build your life on wealth, you've got the storm of, re of recession. If you build your life on love only, there's the storm of rejection. Storms are sent in order to get your attention. And they beckon you to switch. They beckon me to switch our functional trust from false allegiances to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, you know, if you really want to become a Christian, if, you, if you're not a Christian and you want to become a Christian, all you have to do is admit that you're just as helpless to please God in your own flesh and commend your own self to God as the disciples were of getting that boat to shore. Just as helpless. They rowed, they toiled, it wasn't enough. We row, we toil, it's not enough. We need to call on the one who atoned for our sin. You know, the disciples got there. They got there only by taking in the one who was holy, who was powerful, who was absolutely committed to them. And Jesus becomes that safe harbor who will always get us to shore. He becomes the safe harbor that will always get us to glory. We labor here. We share Christ here. We love people here. We do what we can possibly do. We heard a good uh, illustration of it today from Honduras. But, you know, it, it's, it's, just, it's just a time that we live here on earth and ultimately go to glory, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that brings us there. Nothing else. That's why keeping Christ as the focus is always going to work. Father, thank you for our time here and for who you are. And Lord, uh, each of us know heartache. Each of us know things that just frustrate us, that we wonder what to do. Help, to, help us to keep our eyes on you in such a powerful way, Lord, that... Uh, we do what's right and trust you to bring us through. And Lord, you just never fail. 
Uh, you're always trustworthy. And uh, we pray that as we continue on and uh, continue to battle and uh, the storms of life, even in the midst of those times of great joy, uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, uh, we can cling to you and, uh, and uh, you, you give us that kind of relief and uh, where we take you extremely seriously, but not so much ourselves. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.